0: I was reminded in worship, um, I thought the Lord really reminded me of two towns in Israel that were not considered very significant, Um, and yet the Lord delighted in finding insignificant places, insignificant people, and through them revealing His glory, and I felt uh, just when the Lord spoke even about the coming of the Lord, when the Jews heard that Jesus was uh, born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth, this is what was said. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That little obscure place. Anything good. And then in Matthew 2, verse 6, God says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd, who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. And I felt the Lord just wanted to say... Do not think because you in a small town on a small farm in some small area that God has not chosen to, to use you to really bring about great things in his kingdom. Don't settle, don't, don't, don't allow smallness to rob you of what God could do and would do through you. Because the Lord chooses the weak, foolish, broken, despised things like me. And with these things he chooses to reveal his glory. And I, I felt like the Lord wants to break settler, wants to break smallness, and actually and, and really lift faith that from Bethlehem, from Nazareth, God would raise a, a, a leader who would change the world. Don't settle. Don't settle in the comfort of your small areas, your small areas. of. And then MC had a word that she only shared with me this morning after I would prepared the preach, and it kind of does line up. So I didn't know about this word until this morning, but I'm going to let her share it.
1: So nice to be here. Oh, my word, all these faces. It's incredible. I just want to say it's incredible for us. Um, so, I, I felt the Lord gave you a word, all of you churches. Um, and I'm going to read out of 2 Kings. And it's when Elisha went to the uh, 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 widow whose son was dead. Okay, I'm going to read from there. Verse 32, 2 Kings. When Elisha reached the house, there was a boy lying dead on the couch. He went in, shut the door, On the two of them and prayed to the lord then he got on the bed and lay on on the boy mouth to mouth eyes to eyes hand to hands as he stretched himself out on him the body's body the boy's body grew warm and i felt for you as individuals like andrew was saying all of us like melance was saying i felt individuals in churches but i felt the actual churches together in this region I felt as you rise up in unity, I felt the Lord's heart for you for unity, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hands to hands, one in heart, spirit, mind, one voice. I felt the Lord say, I saw the body began to grow warm. And the warm started rising and I felt it spreading and I saw it spreading through the valleys and the hillside and the countryside it was spreading, and it's the glory of the Lord, it's the glory of the Lord, but it will come through unity, heart to heart, one voice, one heart, one spirit, and I just want to encourage you, like Andrew was saying, um, be encouraged, do not be discouraged, run, run with what you've got, run together with what you've got, and look up, because the Lord is with you.
0: Thank you. Oh, nice. All right, so... I want to share, and if I was going to give this a title, I would call it, What Should We Live For? Now that we're Christians, what should we live for? And um, one of the challenges is we've grown up in a country that used to call itself Christian. I don't know if it still does. I see they've taken any reference to God off our new coinage. But uh, in some ways, South Africa's never really been a Christian nation. Because you can only be a Christian when you're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a nation can't be saved. The only nation that ever was that kind of nation was Israel. But now we're within this nation and we are the people of God and we ourselves are those who are Christians. But the problem is this. Many of us have grown up with a Christianity that is just basically, well, I'm not a Muslim, so I'm a Christian. or Yeah, I sort of believe in Jesus and so, yeah, I'm a Christian. But Christianity is not just a, a vague belief in Jesus, it is a life transformed by the power of the gospel that brings us into an entirely different worldview and an entirely different reason for living. And so what I'm hoping to do this morning is to lift our eyes to what, how does a Christian live once he's been saved? What are you supposed to give yourself to? What are you supposed to wake up for on Monday morning? When your week starts what is the primary drive and the thing that you live for the priority of your life is it your career your family your kids what is that thing that you and i should live for and maybe to begin with uh, uh, i'm going we're gonna end in scripture because i think we need to lay the foundation of the bible in this matter but i remember getting saved at 20 years of age and uh, I still remember it was one of those life-defining moments for me that changed my, my whole understanding of everything. And I, I had this encounter with the Lord that was very, very powerful, and it really did change me. And I, I want to share that with you because for me, this was my life-defining moment. I had met Him, I was born again, and I'd been so- serving Jesus to some degree for a while. And I remember it was a Sunday afternoon. I had been to church that morning, and I had had a busy week, I was quite tired, and I really didn't feel like going to church that night, because I used to go to church morning and evening in those days. And so it was about three o'clock in the afternoon, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And I knew I should go to church that night, but I didn't feel like it. ever felt like that. And so I kind of was like, a ah, throwaway line. I, I had this I don't know why I said it, but I said this to the Lord. "Lord, I don't feel like going to church tonight. Show me what love is, and I go to church tonight. And I, I don't know why I said it. I didn't actually expect anything to happen. It is a throwaway moment. But I think the Lord was somehow working in me in that moment. And so I said that little say and figured, what's going to happen? I'm going to end up going, not going to church tonight. But in a moment, I had this very powerful encounter with the Lord in the little house that I was, or well, flat that I was living in. And I remember I was standing at my desk um, and the next minute I I was taken into, the best I can explain it was a vision trance type thing. And I know trance is a bad word, but it did feel to me like this wasn't just a vision. This felt to me like an experience, like the Holy Spirit took me into an experience. And for those of you that are worried about my language right now, maybe the best I can give you is where Paul the Apostle speaks about someone who was taken into the third heaven and he doesn't know whether it was in the flesh He doesn't fully understand it, but he had this encounter. This is what it felt like for me. And in the vision, I was taken into, I don't think it was the third heaven, but it was heaven. And um, I remember standing on the one side and um, just a sea of people. I'm going to shorten it a little bit. A sea of people worshiping the Lord. And I remember when I was able to look at him, seated in glory. It was Jesus, King of kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible uses that language to explain Him. But when, when you see Him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it goes beyond some weak thing to, I realized as I saw Him in glory, that this, this one created the universe at a word. This one held all things together by the power of his word. He was over all things, nothing in creation compared to him. Kings come and go at his whim. He is king of kings, And Lord of Lords, there is no one higher in all creation than Him. And He's seated in glory and majesty. And as far as I can see, I think there were angels uh, and their hands up and they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I was absolutely overwhelmed at the bigness and the glory and the wonder of how I saw Him. And to give you an idea of how big He was in that moment... I remember at one point just being conscious of him, and then I saw him look down, and he was seated on a throne. Yeah, I remember he had a purple robe on, and there was this little tennis ball-sized object just floating. His throne was suspended in the air, and below his throne was this little tennis ball-sized object turning. And he looked down at this little thing, this little ball-shaped thing, and I remember his eyes just filled with compassion. And so my attention went to what he was looking at, and I realized I was looking at the earth, The Bible speaks of the earth being his footstool, this little insignificant blob (laughs) that I was on, and I realized how big he is and how small we are, and then something happened in him, and I saw him responding in love to what he was seeing on that little blob, and I remember him getting up, and he took his crown, he had a crown off, he took his crown off, and he had a purple kind of robe, and he, he lifted it off, and he put it down, and then I was taken from that place in a moment to the cross where he was crucified. And he was suspended in the air. And I remember I was suspended in the air in front of him, very close to him, probably within a meter, meter and a half away from him, just looking at him on the cross. And I realized in the moment that the one I'd seen in glory was now absolutely debased and broken in shame. And I remember the first thing that I realized I had not seen, just long before the Passion of the Christ, I had not seen anything like this in my life. But I remember there was, the first thing that struck me was the amount of blood that was pouring out of him. Like I, I've hurt myself in some extreme sports that I've done, but I've never ever seen so much blood pouring out of an individual. And he was hanging on the cross with his head down, and I was just looking at him. And the Bible says that he was whipped 39 times with a Roman scourge, which is a, Basically a, a whip with a number of leather thongs on it, and then there would be ball bearings and pieces of metal and bone. So ball bearings on it to bruise you, and the end of every, of every strand would have a bone or a piece of metal that was sharpened. And so every whip would bring about these you know, nine or 12 things that would hook around, bruise your flesh, like metal ball bearings. The whip would obviously whip you, and then the, the, the metal and the bone would hook into your flesh. And then they would hook it out so every time they would have to whip you and hook it out of you and they'd beaten him 39 times and that's 39 times each of those strands every time they'd whipped him so one equals like nine or 12 whips i read later that historians said when a person was beaten with a roman beating you wouldn't survive a roman beating The jewish beating you would survive that was a stick Roman beating, you're going to die from the beating. The chance of survival is almost non-existent. And uh, historians said sometimes a person's intestines, there was so much meat damage here and, and muscle damage that sometimes a person's intestines would actually fall out of their stomach. He was beaten beyond human recognition. And I saw him... And I, I didn't understand them, but when you're hanging on the cross, they've nailed you through your wrists and your feet. Your ulnar nerve is, your, um, is more sensitive than your funny bone. So if you've ever knocked your funny bone and you get that like jolting pain, the ulnar nerve is a larger nerve, more sensitive, and they nail you through that nerve. So when you're hanging on the cross, that is just excruciating pain comes from Latin ex crucifixo. they in, invented a word because it was so painful to die on the cross, and you're in an inhaled position because you're, rip, you're hanging, your arms dislocate, so his arms are dislocated. He's hanging down like this, and there's just blood everywhere pouring out of him. I remember being able to see through the layers of meat and fat into sometimes there is a bone sticking out head down, and he's suffocating. And what happens is they would stick a little wooden thing under your bum if they wanted you to suffer longer. Because the desire to stay alive means you you try to hang your bum on that little, that little wooden thing. And in doing that, you can kind of prolong your death, which is what they wanted. They wanted you to die painfully and slowly. And so he's hanging there, and then he keeps trying to lift himself up on his legs. But every time he lifts himself that nerve is with a nail through it is all that's holding him up. So you can't hold it there. And you weaken, your blood loss pouring out, and so you fall back down. And you slowly feel your life sapping away from you. And I saw him in that place of weakness, beaten beyond human recognition. And I was overwhelmed. I just couldn't understand it, to be honest. I mean, I'd, I'd read about the cross, and I'd, but I, I couldn't understand why any same person would leave what he had to come to this place, to this place of suffering. And um, he, he slowly head down was he was suffered, battling to breathe. He eventually suffocated. you, blood loss, asphyxiation. And then he looked up at me and he looked into my eyes. And I remember his face was beaten, bleeding. He looked into my eyes and he said this. He said, Andrew, I love you. And I would have come to this cross just to pay for your sin. This is love. And at that moment, I snapped back into my room, and I was weeping, and I was just sobbing, like, God, I don't understand why you would do that for me. I don't understand how the God who made the universe, the one who holds all things together, could love me, me, like that. I don't understand how you would let anyone do that to you when you've got all power. He said this when they were... Beating him and mocking him. I've got 12 legions of angels waiting at my command. But he allowed humanity to do that to him. And I realized for the first time, properly, when he said he loved me, that this is how deep his love went for me. And I remember falling on my knees in my room and I was crying. And I remember saying, over and over again, crying and groaning and saying these words, Lord, I'll never be able to repay you. I'll never justify what you've done for me. But I'm giving you the rest of my life. It's yours. It's yours. I can't live for me anymore, God. When I see what you've done for me, I can never live for me anymore. I'll never be able to repay you, no matter how hard I serve you, no matter what I do for you. Because the sacrifice was that great. But I'm yours. You've won me. I'm yours. And that changed the course of my life. And I began to live for God, where before that I lived for me and for the things that I loved. And that experience, I know many people have said, I wish I could experience what you experienced. You don't need to experience what I experienced, because the Bible is very clear. Everything I've said is in the text. Jesus Christ, the one who made it all, who holds all things together by the power of his word, died on a cross for your sin. And for Mars, so that you and I could be reconciled to God, how do we live in the light of the cross? How do we live in the light of the fact that God came to redeem us from the way we live and the things we do and to bring us into relationship with him and into working with him on the earth and in two corinthians five fifteen the writer Paul gives us a, a clear Message about out of this, and he says, And he, Jesus, died for all. That means what he did for me, he did for you. I believe this with all my heart because Jesus said, I leave the 99 to find the one. We often think he died for humanity. Jesus has always been about the one. If you were the only person that he'd made, or if you were the only person that would respond, to what He did. He died for you. It was a personal thing for you. He made you from dust. He formed you in your mother's womb. He dreamed and planned things over your life. He saw you go astray like Adam, with Adam's sin in your veins. He saw you live for yourself selfishly and turn away from God. And so the Bible says, eventually there was no one righteous, no, not even one. All have turned away and together become worthless. But God so loved The world. God so loved you that He came to redeem you and He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and was raised again. He died. So that you would no longer live for you, but that you would live the rest of your life as the revelation comes of what God has done for you, of how he's worked to reconcile you, of how he's called your name out before the Father and says, they're mine. That in that moment, something in you changes and you say, I will no longer live for me. I'll no longer do the things I want to do. I will from this day onward live for you. Do you see that? To be a Christian means you don't live for you anymore. It means you live for Him. This is 101 Christianity. And I fear that we've settled for a form of religion without the power thereof. We've settled for people saying, I'm a Christian, but they live entirely selfishly and don't give themselves to the one who died on a cross to save them. I am not my own, the Bible says. I was bought with a price. The price for me was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we bring that into this context, do you understand, and I would ask you this question, is that Scripture true for you? Honestly, are you living for Him? And to to show what you live for, you just have to look at your diary. What are the priorities of your life? What is the deep motive of your life? When you think of the rest of my life, is there in that dream, a dream of somehow being able to give yourself to Him, somehow through who you are and who He's made you to be and what He's given you by gifts and grace, that you would bring Him glory? Because that is supposed to be the priority of our, all of our lives. Why are you where you are? Why do you live where you are? What is the priority? What is the purpose? And so many things come and they take our love and affection away from Him. I think Melani shared a word on this. God wanting all of us. You know, I've got a daughter that I love dearly. And when she has grandkids, when she has kids and we have grandkids, I shudder to think what my wife will be like because I've seen her already with her love for our daughter and my love for our daughter. But I cannot and we cannot live for our daughter. We love her, and we do our best to reflect Jesus to her. But she is not our life priority, nor our grandchildrens' our life priority. Nor is career my life priority. Career is a thing that came much later. It was spawned out of, you know, movements over the history. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. I live to see God's glory come to the earth. I live for him who died for me. And I'm grateful that he's given us a daughter. She's a miracle. And I'll, I'll be grateful if he gives us grandchildren and we'll enjoy them and reflect him to them. But they will never be the priority of our lives. South Africa, I love this nation. South Africa, and I hope I never have to leave her. But I am not my own. I was born with a price, bought to the price. My wallet is not my own. It belongs to him. I'm his. <laughs> Do you get this? And so we've got to continue reevaluate ourselves. Am I living like this? Is my life priority the king and the kingdom? Is it what I live for? Or am I so busy looking after my own life that I've actually lost the main thing as a Christian? Now, please understand. He says, if you look after my kingdom, if you look after my house, I'll look after yours. So I know the best thing I can be to my wife and daughter and and everything else is to seek him first. Because then he looks after my things. But if I try and hold on to my things, they become enemies of God. They become idolatrous. And then the Lord says, if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I want God fighting for my family, not against my family. I want God fighting for my daughter, not against my daughter. Because I made her too big, too high, too important. I want God to be fighting for my business, not against my business. Because if our business is more important than the king and the kingdom, then my business is an idol. And the Lord disciplines whom he loves, he'll fight against those things. All that I have is his. I'm not my own. I was bought with blood for goodness sake off the fields of slavery to sin and now I'm a slave of God I'm a son and a slave and he seated me at his table and he's given me an everlasting love how can I live for me in the light of this great sacrifice and this great love and then Jesus said this in Matthew 28 verse 19 and this is something that he gives to all of us and this really should be the 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 broad object of what we live for this is something Jesus asks for every believer. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why are you here? Why are you on the earth? Why didn't he just take you to be with him when you, you, know, you, you lift your hand? Yes, Jesus, forgive me of for my sin. Whoop, I'll take you to heaven. That's it. Why did he leave you here? We sang that song, and I didn't know we were going to sing that song because there's a world around us that doesn't know about this. There's a world around us that's still captive to sin. And He wants us now to go and to tell others that we love and people that we need to meet about God's great plan of redemption. Go and make disciples of nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And He says, And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Do you know that you're a missionary? You're a sent one. You're to go and you're to tell others about the love of God. You're supposed to ultimately see the kingdom of God come to the earth. I love John Wesley. He was a great leader who started the Methodist Church. And he once said this, the world is my parish. The world is my parish. Can I say this too? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You'll be my witness in Barney Vale. And then you'll be my witness in Swellendam and the surrounding areas, even if you live in Barney vale. And then you'll be my witness in the Western Cape. And then you'll be my witness to the ends of the earth. Each of those areas you to give yourselves to. And in the church, everyone's involved. It's not like, yeah, we'll pay that oak to go and do the job. No, we're the ones who are supposed to do the work of ministry. The Bible speaks about that, that we're kingdom of priests, called out and set apart to serve God. And so we all have to work together to that end, because one can only do so much. But together, watch out, world, here we come. Watch out, world, here we come. Philippians 2 verse 2, we read about how we to posture ourselves. And we we had people joining today. And there's a sense of we're now one. We're working together. But we're not just one to fill pews together. Great, we've got some more people. We're here on a mission. And the mission is the purpose of all of our lives is the same. We exist to see God's kingdom come to the earth. We breathe oxygen so that we can tell others about the good news of God's love. We work together in partnership. To make disciples of nations. And so Paul says this. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Of one mind. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit and intent on one purpose. One purpose. If I had to go through the rows and ask individually each one of you. What is your purpose in life? If you say, well, I, uh, I want to be an accountant or I want to be a married, no, oh, no, 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 then we're going to have lots of purposes. Our intent is not those things, those are, those are blessings and benefits. We intent on one purpose. Every one of us should think like this. If I'm in swell and dumb or wherever I am, I'm here to make disciples, but I'm not bound to swell and dumb. I'm intent on one purpose. And while I'm in Swillendam, I'm going to reach as many people with the good news of Jesus. And I'm going to bring them into an understanding of what it is to belong in the family of God. I'm here to make disciples with others. To work together. One mind, one heart, one purpose. And so we've got to change the reason we live. We've got to change what we wake up for. We've got to put to death our flesh so that we can live for the one he died for all of us. And I do promise you this. I can't, well, I can, Jesus says this. If you lay things, give things up for me, you will not fail, you'll, you will not fail to receive a reward in this life and the next. 30, 60, 100 times what you give up. God is faithful to look after us as we seek his kingdom. So we to have this one purpose. And, and again, now, what, how does this work? How do we make disciples? How do we, I mean, you can go on the streets and you can, you can pray the sinner's prayer with somebody. Do you want to accept Jesus in your life? Yes, I do. Okay, let's pray this prayer. But that's not going to disciple them properly. And God has chosen a way of changing the world. Really two things. A message, the gospel, and the church. The church is the vehicle he wants to use to change the world. We drove this morning from Lenin Hetty's house in Swellendam, and we climbed in a Nissan X-Trail. Forgot what it was there. Nissan X-Trail. It's a car designed with a purpose. And we traveled how many kilometers? 45 kilometers. We did it in about half an hour. If I didn't have the vehicle... I'd still be walking. In fact, I don't know if I would have walked with this rain. <laughs> because God, we design vehicles to do something. God has designed a vehicle to change the world. And it is the church. It is the church. It's us. It's how we are together, how we work together, how we give ourselves to one purpose. And we see this in Ephesians 3 verse 10. His intent, God's intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Do you know that every region has rulers over it spiritually? You've got governors in the natural and you've got governors in the spiritual. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And you'll see that over cities. You'll see that over regions. You'll see you can come into... And those are really, let me ask you a question. Who is king of the earth right now? If you say Jesus, not actually. Not actually, because the Bible says we don't see all things yet bowing to him. We will see when he returns. Then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But right now, who's the Lord of this earth? Satan. The God of this age. The prince of the power of the air the king of this world and he rules and reigns on the earth and in a sense he's blinded men to the power of the gospel he's blinded men to Jesus and he's, and he's working through media through everything to try and make them think a certain way about the king and the kingdom and he even the bible even says in the end times he'll blaspheme the people of God he'll make us out like we haters you hate people you judge people no I judge no one it's not my place to judge man I'm a sinner too, saved by grace. But I want to tell you, if you want to, if you want to be accepted by God, there's only one way to do that, through the man Jesus Christ. There's no other way but through Him. And you must turn from a way of life, be it homosexuality, be it sexual immorality, be it financial immorality, be it whatever immorality it is, we turn from our sin and we turn to Him. We're all sinners saved by grace. There's no one righteous among us except Him. I'm not judging you, I'm just, I just wish you'd get saved because I remember what it was like to be a sinner, to be sexually immoral, and it sucked, like we sang in that song. It offered the world and it took everything away. We're not haters, we're those that love, but the devil is working to malign us, to blaspheme us, that's the Bible actually uses, the word blaspheme the church and the king. But God has an intent, you can say all you want about the church, but God says this, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against what I build. As the church gives itself to Christ and bows and says, we live for you and for your purpose, as we join together as one new man in Christ Jesus, as we all love one another as he's called us to, we become an unstoppable force. The gates of hell and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms can't hold back the church. And so the church starts to advance. And as we advance, the church becomes a vehicle that changes the world. The church. And who is the church? <laughs> you're it. You're it. In each of your areas, you're it. And as you join together, as you love one another, as you work with one purpose... Hell can't hold you back. But if hell sidelines you and gets you distracted and keeps you busy with your own things, then you'll never properly be the church because you won't be the church yielded to Christ. You'll be a compromised, lukewarm, watered down, demonically bound church. Say, what do you mean, demonically bound church? Simon Peter, an apostle at one point gets his story wrong and says to Jesus, Jesus, there's no way you should be crucified. There's no way you should die. And Jesus turns to an apostle and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the things of God in mind, but of men. Can I say in any church that's got stuff of men in their hearts, not the things of God, you're bound by Satan just like he was. We were bought to live for Him and for His glory. Remember the church. You've got the church and the church. Ninety percent of South Africa says it's the church. Do you think it is? How much of South Africa is truly saved? It's. You can see it by the way we are. Uh, My guess, South Africa, my guess is maybe, maybe 2%. Maybe. I'm being generous. I just hope I'm in that 2%. Like, Lord, please, when you come back, remember me. Let me be found in you, Lord. Let me not be found living for myself anymore, but for him who died on a cross for me. For I am not my own. The church is the answer. And I want to say some things. Years ago, we used to send our children to mission organizations because the church was sleeping. And God used that. But mission organizations are not God's way. The church is God's way. And we now don't send our children to mission organizations because we are the mission organization, us together. And even as you're in these areas and in these regions, please understand, there are towns and regions that already, I had people come to me saying, when you are you going to plant something in Riversdale? When are you going to plant something here? When will you bring what we have here, there? Because the world needs to see the church so that it can learn about the God of the church. And we need churches in every town, in every region, all over the world. We've got a job to do to make disciples of Nations. Don't settle for Bonnyvale or Swell and Dumb or Cape Town. We need healthy churches. We need each part growing up and maturing and starting to reflect Christ to one another. We need churches where people love one another as Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. By this will the world know that you're mine when you love he says, I'm not calling you to do this on your own. I've given you my spirit who lives in you. And you are being built together to become a temple, a dwelling place for the very presence of God. But if there's factions and divisions and self-centeredness, and well, then you're no longer reflecting God. You're reflecting your culture. So love one another. Be humble. The world needs to see a healthy church. And in Acts two, forty two to forty seven, we see a little little pick of what a healthy church looks like. And I want us to just look at this because this is the church this church changed our world. If this church didn't happen, we wouldn't be here today. Because this was the first time the church was forged on the earth. And because of these people's faith, the gospel went out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And right now in South Africa, 2,000 years later, I know and believe in Jesus because of them. And this is what they looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoted themselves. Poured their lives up for this. And devoted themselves to fellowship to one another, to the breaking of bread, they did this in their homes, and to prayer, they would gather together and break bread, remember Jesus, talk about Jesus, break bread together and pray together. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. The more we become like Christ, the more Christ moves within us, and we see miracles and signs and wonders, sense of awe when we meet You know, when the church is doing well, there's that sense of Jesus could do anything right now. That's when you know, okay, we're starting to tap into something. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Do you realize we're individualists, aren't we? Westerners. Me in my small corner and you in yours. Actually, in the church, no, we're one. We're one new man in Christ Jesus. They sold properties and possessions and gave to anyone as he had need. They loved they probably won't love one another. If there were lazy people in their church, we actually read later Paul says this. If there's someone lazy among you, speak to them. If they're not working because they're lazy, speak to them again. And then if they're really lazy, bring it to the church and, and basically ask Everyone in the church to not help that person. That's when the church is getting healthy. We have to call people up and say, hey, Len, would you come up? And Len comes up and they say, Len, we've spoken to him about laziness. We've tried to provide work for him, but he's just mooching off the rest of you. So stop helping him. If you see him on the street corner, don't help him because you're not helping him by helping him. All right? And the church goes, okay, we won't help Len. We'll help everyone else. When last did you see that done in church? That's in the Bible. (laughs) <laughs> we're so far this side that we actually have to grow up until we get to that side every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts it wasn't just a Wednesday night it was family, it was community they loved one another when you love someone, you want to be with them and listen, there's always been like and love eh? Jesus and not say like one another Love one another. Love covers. Love believes the best of. Praising God, worship, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you know why people got saved daily into that? Because when you look at that, you start to see what God's like. And when the church starts to reflect what God is like, people walk into even our meetings. They walk into our fellowship, our families, and they go, Truly, what I'm experiencing here is not of this world. I don't understand it, but I want it. And the message of the gospel rings out and brings them in too so that they can believe. The only way, and I'm nearly finished, the only way the world will ever see Jesus is if we become the church that he's looking for. In Ephesians 1 verse 22 and 23, listen to this. And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Jesus, God puts all things under his feet and, and gives him headship over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in every way when all in all. In other words, this. If you want to know what Jesus is like, you should actually just be able to say, Go look at the church. Because the church is his body. The fullness of him who fills all things in every way. When you love one another, who are you really loving? You're loving him. What you do for the least little ones of mine, you did it for me, he said. When Paul persecuted the church, he was chasing it down to Antioch. Jesus meets him on the road, says, wow, you're persecuting me. And Saul's like, who are you that I'm persecuting you? You're the Christ in heaven. But if you touch the church, you touch him. The church is the fullness of him who fills all things in every way. And you are members of his body. And each one of you has a part to play. And when all of you play your part, the body starts to look like him. You are not to fill a pew. You're to grow up and mature so that you can reflect Christ to us. And when you play your part and I play mine, and we all work together with one purpose to disciple nations, hell can't stop us. Hell can't stop us. We've settled for so much less than God's intent. How many of you believe God wants to reach this region with healthy churches? The church is sick, man. The church is terminally ill all around us. And we can get there too if we're not careful. But we must strive with all our hearts to remain true to the text, true to the word of God. We must give ourselves as one man to one purpose. We must remain in humility and accountability, all the different things that are supposed to be there. But we must work together to show this world through us what he's like. <laughs> and you have a part to play. In fact, here's the thing. The Bible says as each part plays its bit. The body grows in his life. That means if you don't play your part, they'll never see the fullness of him. They'll never see Jesus properly. And we need to work together. And I would ask you to sacrifice for this region and the regions beyond. If we do end up in Riversdale, wherever we end up, are you prepared to disciple nations, to travel, to minister, to serve, to help with kids, to help with worship? Because you live for Him. You live for the purposes of Him. I'm going to finish with a a strong warning, and then we finished. See, I, I wanted to be honest. I want to give you no option but to do the things that I believe the Bible is asking you to do here. The, 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 the thing that terrifies me the most is that you're going to walk out of here and just carry on the way you were. Surely the Word of God, when it comes, it, it changes us. So Peter writes about the end times. And he writes about something very scary, and I want us to listen to it and then respond to God's Word. In 2 Peter 2, verse 1 to 2, Peter's writing about the end times, you will see it now, and he says, but just as there were false prophets among the people. Now, when were there false prophets among the people? In the Old Testament. Do you remember the false prophets that emerged over and over and over again? In fact, it was hard to find a good prophet sometimes. In the time of Elijah, he said... I'm the only one. And God said, No, I've got a few others hidden you don't know about. But for Elijah to say, I'm the only one in a nation that should be serving God, that's a very scary concept. Then he says, Just as that happened then, so there will be false teachers among you. Now he looks forward. He looks back and he looks forward. And where's he looking forward to? To us. He says, like there were false prophets leading people astray then, there's going to be false teachers in the end times. They will secretly introduce, in other words, you're not going to see how it got into your thinking, but it got into your thinking. Destructive heresies. Even denying, and this is how he knows you know it's, it's a destructive heresy, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. If your Christianity doesn't lead you to this place, sovereign Lord, the word is karios. It's literally the Lord of a master. That's the direct, the word is Lord. It's a Lord. karios is one who has slaves, who bought them. Do you get the language of slavery? You are, you are a slave to sin. And God saw you and had mercy on you and saw that your slave masters were terrible. And he purchased you with blood and brought you into his household where now he becomes your master and your Lord. And you no longer exist for you because as a slave you have no you. You have no rights. You live for your master and thank God your new master is a good master. And he calls you son and daughter and seats you at his table and he treats you in a way that you do not deserve. But make no mistake, in your heart you must remember I was bought. I'm not my own. I was bought to the price. And he is my Lord. And as a slave, I live for my master's glory. Any doctrine that doesn't lead you to that place is a destructive heresy that secretly sneaks in. If you think you can be a Christian and live for you, you're deceived. And you deny the Lord who bought you. And he warns, bringing swift destruction on themselves. I am not my own. I was bought to the price. My master, I thank God he saved me. Because I was a drug addict. And I was sexually immoral. And I did everything that my heart wanted to do. And it felt amazing for a while, but in the end it started to destroy me and destroy me inside. I began to feel it, what it was, the sin corroding and destroying the image of God in me. But my master saw me and had mercy on me. And though I was a slave to sin, he spent blood to save me. And so now, I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I live for my master. I live to see his kingdom come on the earth. My story is yours too. For we all have sinned. And all have turned away. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that we won't live for us. We'll live for him. And so I want to close the session with this. Who are you living for? Honestly, I mean, who are you living for? When you think about the future, when you think about where you would live or what you would do, is the priority first? The kingdom of God through the vehicle of the church. And how can my career, how can my family, how can everything that I have is precious? How can it serve my master? Or is it? I go where it's good financially. I go where it's good for my family. I go. The one is living for the master, the one is living for me. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And you were made to live him can we pray together let's bow our heads this is not a heavy word it's a glorious word for the lord wants to share his inheritance with you he wants to bring you into his plans and his purposes and he promises that as we seek his kingdom first he'll be with us to the very end of the age we will know him more dearly and more closely as we place His kingdom as our life priority. And just, I want to ask you something as the people of God. Would you, in the light of these scriptures, choose to no longer live for you, but for Him who called you? Would you come before your master and say, Lord, you've saved me. Lord, I belong to you. Here's my life. Here's my everything. I will seek your kingdom first from this day onwards until I stand before you one day and hear you speak over me. Well done, my good and my faithful servant. Father, I belong to you. Use me to glorify your name. Use me and use us to reveal your glory and your wisdom to the rulers and the authorities throughout the Overberg regions and beyond. That through us working together as one man, we'll see your kingdom come on the earth. We'll see people changed by the power of the gospel and brought through into healthy churches and growing and maturing and then going again so that we can make disciples of nations as you asked us to. From this day onward, God, I give myself to that end. I am yours. My family is yours. Use me as you see fit, Lord. And if that's you, I want to ask you in response before the king who right now is with us in this place. I want to ask you to commit yourself with me to the purpose of the king. For the scripture says that we would no longer live for us, but for him who died on our behalf and was raised again. And if you together with me as one man would say, we are yours, Lord. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Master. We commit ourselves to that end. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We are yours, Lord. We're not our own. We're not our own. Father, I want to thank you that actually this is why Jesus died. That, God, you would draw unto yourself men and women and bring them into fellowship with yourself. That through them, God, we would see your kingdom come on the earth, Father, we stand before you as one new man. We came as individuals, but now, Lord, we've been joined together in you and in your Son. Here we are, Lord. Take our lives and use them for your glory. We bring you our careers. We bring you our families. We bring you everything that's dear to us, Master. You are our Lord. Help us, Lord in your grace, in your mercy, in your kindness. Help us when we're weak, when we stumble, and bring us back to this place that we will live for the Master. We will live to disciple nations. We'll live to work as one man with one purpose. (laughs) No one caring for themselves, but living to love one another and to bring your kingdom to this fallen, dark broken world. Father, my prayers that you would come upon each one. Each one is a living sacrifice. Each one precious to you, Father. Each one here, carrying a unique purpose and a unique destiny. A unique grace, a sense of your presence and your life in them. Help us to mature in these things and to become the fullness of Him who fills all things in every way. That, Lord, as we grow, that the world would come and visit us and see what Jesus is like. Even as he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We would say, if you've seen us, you've seen Christ. Glorify your name, God, we pray in Jesus' name. And I pray for each region, each town. Raise us up, leaders, servants, worship leaders, administrators, children's workers, sound guys. Raise us up as those who would work together evangelists, pastors, teachers, raise us up, Lord, gifts of administration, gifts of mercy, gifts of gifts, all these things, that, Lord, we would reflect you in this region like the world has never, ever seen before in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And I almost feel like saying as Jesus did, now go into all the world. Go into all the world. Make disciples of your neighbors, make disciples of those at school, make disciples of those in mom's groups with you, (laughs) baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I would remind you that the Lord Jesus said, and I will be with you, I'll be right by your side to the very end of the age, until I present you before my Father, and say, they were mine, they're mine, bought with my blood, belonging to me, amen?